Well, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. This evening we are considering verses 14 through 36. Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 36. This, of course, is a, a pretty big section of Scripture, pretty big section in, in Luke's Gospel. And my goal is to focus on a central theme that ties all of these these many passages together. So Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 36. Please pay careful attention, for this is the word of our Lord. Now Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, but if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if, it, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own place, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is a, an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. 
When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Make me right this word upon our hearts this evening. Well, our narrative picks up today in, in Luke chapter 11 with Jesus doing something that he has done on a somewhat routine basis in his earthly ministry. He is casting out a demon or an unclean spirit. On this occasion, he's casting out this unclean spirit from a man who, who was we see that after this exorcism, this mute man's lips were loosed. He began, he begins to immediately speak. And the crowd, and the great crowd that was gathered to witness this, this miracle has a varied response. We learn that some in the crowd marvel. They wonder. They maybe even worship Christ as, as the Son of God. While others challenge Jesus. We see this challenge taking place on two fronts. First, we see one segment of the crowd denying the identity of Christ. We think of these as atheists, of course. They, they not only deny Jesus' identity, but they say that he's actually working against God. He's in league with the devil. The second is by those who, who don't go as far as this first section of the crowd. They don't deny the identity of Jesus, but they're just agnostic. Not going to make any, any declaration about who Jesus is yet. We want more evidence. We want a sign from heaven to definitively assure us that this is the true prophet of God. And Jesus, then, in this passage, responds to both of these this evening, I'd like us to focus our attention upon both of these challenges as well as Jesus' response to these challenges. And hopefully, Lord willing, we can learn something for ourselves in our own apologetics in our world today. As I mentioned, this first opposition that Jesus receives from the crowd is what I, I term uh, the atheists. Now you might think, well, these technically aren't atheists because these are Jews who who still affirmed Yahweh as God, they just rejected Christ as his Messiah. But as one 17th century Presbyterian minister has said, if, if one rejects Christ as mediator, they're essentially rejecting the God who sent him. Regardless, see, this group, they, they're rejecting the identity that Christ is claiming for himself. If you look with me in, in verse 15, we read that this this portion of the crowd is saying that Jesus cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. They're saying that Jesus is in league with the devil. Not only is he not the true prophet of God, he's working against God. He's casting out demons in the name of Satan. Now Jesus, in response, 
he bonds this plane over here. He, he seeks to show the, how irrational and illogical this, this notion is. For instance, if you look in verse 17, Jesus responds by saying, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. If, if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Jesus is appealing to something that is, is quite evident to our common sense. A kingdom divided is not going to last for very long. In fact, it's a sure re recipe for defeat. Jesus is saying, why, why in the world would Satan be casting out his own demons? This makes no sense at all. It's nonsensical. It's irrational. It's illogical. Jonah being the, the belly of the whale for three days and then being vomited out. 
which would point to Jesus' death, but then especially his resurrection. So which one is it? Is the sign of Jonah pointing to this, this message of Jesus or his resurrection? I think it's both. And the connection is that Jesus' resurrection is what validates the message. Jesus' resurrection proves that all of the word of God is true and trustworthy. Just as Jonah's uh, miracle of, of being of surviving the belly of a whale for three days, being vomited out, is verification that his message can be heeded. So too with Christ in a much greater way. Jesus is a, uh, essentially saying to those in his midst, I've been proving my identity with many signs and wonders and miracles, but in a very short time, I will definitively prove that I am who I say I am by rising from the dead on the third day. And after that, no more signs are needed. Just this. This is why the resurrection stands at, 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 at such a pivotal point in the Christian faith. It is indeed that first domino, which if the resurrection of Christ falls, everything else falls. If the resurrection of Christ stands, the, then everything that Christ claimed to be and to do stands as well. All of Scripture can be trusted to the fullest truth. In verse 28, in between these two episodes, we see Jesus responding to a, a woman who is praising Mary to be the mother of our Lord. And Jesus, in response, says, you know, Blessed, rather, is the one who hears and keeps the word of God. Blessed is the one who, who hyper-hears, who really hears. Hears in such a way that they actually put it into practice. Blessed are they. Those who are engaged in this type of hearing, they're like the Ninevites, who responded appropriately to the message of Jonah. They're like the Queen of the South, who, who responded appropriately the wisdom of Solomon, the messages of God's anointed. So Jesus is saying that if the Ninevites, if the Queen of the South responded, obeyed, heeded the words of, of these mere men, of Solomon and of Jonah, how much more should you be heeding and hearing the words of the Son of God himself, the fulfillment of all of those types? Now, most of us here probably would not identify as an atheist or an agnostic. So what, what does this have to do with us? What does this have to teach us? Of course, well, just because we, we may not identify as, as an atheist or agnostic, doesn't mean we don't still struggle with what could be called a practical atheism or agnosticism. As John Calvin said in his Institutes of, of Christian religion, as he speaks about how a perfect faith is nowhere to be found. So it follows that we all remain, in part, unbelievers. We all struggle with this practical atheism or agnosticism. 
what I mean by this is it's very easy for us to confess the truth of God's word, is it not? It's a whole other thing to actually live as if it's true. It's one thing to confess these great doctrines of the, of the Christian faith that are in our catechism, that are in our Bible. It's another thing to actually allow those truths to transform our wills and to shape our hearts. I was reading this week, and artists sometimes speak about a concept called visual lethargy. I mean, the more you look at a scene or even a piece of art, the less cognizant you are of the specific details of that scene. So if you think of another example, if you were taking a new route to work one day, that very first time on that route, you're going to be very cognizant of your scenery, the signs, the trees, everything that you're, you're going through. But then six months in, you're not really going to notice those details at all. You become lethargic. A similar thing can happen with the truth of Scripture. We become so acquainted with these glorious truths that we become lethargic to them. We begin to just view them as old hats, and we don't really live in our practical experience as if they're actually true. I mean, just think for a moment about the gospel, something that we all know, something that we hear every Lord's Day in the Declaration of now, if this is true, this is outrageous. If we believe that there is a God who's holy, and we are sinners, and thus are the just recipients of his wrath, we believe that his wrath, especially his wrath which will be exercised in the second coming of Christ, is infinitely greater than the worst thing that you can imagine in this believe that Christ, without any merit of our own, has saved us, redeemed us from an eternity of God's wrath? I mean, just thinking about doing stuff, doing your favorite thing in this life for an eternity is helpful. How much more so the very worst thing that you can think of? Christ has redeemed us from that, has brought us into his everlasting kingdom and and we have a glorious inheritance that's going to be infinitely better than all the joys and blessings that we experience in this life. If God himself looks upon us and says that you are forgiven and righteous and a beloved child, this is outrageous. But so often, this has very little impact on us. So often, we care so much more about the approval and disapproval of those around us. And this glorious declaration of God upon us in Christ fades the background. So often we get so consumed with our earthly inheritances, possessions, money, finances, and the like. And our heavenly inheritance falls out of our mind. God showed up. Imagine if God showed up in a, a, a vision of souls. And gave you the sign from heaven, as it were. And proved to you that his word is true. That this gospel declaration is true beyond any shadow of a doubt. Would that change your view of scripture or the gospel? And if it would, Jesus is saying, you need to hear this passage. 
No more signs are needed. Jesus has given us the definitive sign in rising from the dead. And we are called to grow and, and living more and more as if this is true. As true as anything we know. But why did this generation, this crowd that Jesus was speaking to, why did they disbelieve? Some were so-called atheists, some were agnostics. Well, why did they disbelieve? They had Jesus in front of them, performing signs and miracles and wonders, claiming to be the prophet of God and fulfilling scripture in their midst. How could they disbelieve? Why does generation after generation disbelieve? Today, the scriptures are, especially in the West, accessible by, by anybody. And the Bible's all over the place, but we have so many people who disbelieve. Why? Why do people disbelieve? So I'd like to conclude by considering this question, what is the cause of unbelief? You know, some would say that you know, the cause of unbelief is it's a capricious God. We have a God who arbitrarily saves some and damns others. Just arbitrary. Others would say that people just need more evidence. More evidence. If, if people just had the right information, they would believe. But Jesus here gives us the right answer. The right answer to this question of why do some people disbelieve? And we find this answer in verses 33 through 36. He's explaining for us why. Why there are those in the crowd who who are reacting, either by wanting more signs or reacting by claiming he's in league with the devil. So in verses 33 through 36, Jesus is appealing to a, a common notion that was held in uh, the Greco-Roman world, uh, a common notion in, in their view of the human body. At this time, there was an idea that the, the human body contained this inner natural light. And the eye functioned not as a, a receptor of light, but as a conduit that allowed that inner natural light to get out. And Jesus is saying that the health of the eye is crucial. If the eye is healthy, it's like you, you're putting a, a lamp on a stand. The light can go forth. But if your eye is diseased, unhealthy, it's like you're putting a basket on that inner light. It can't go anywhere. And the meaning of, of this illustration is, is essentially this. Adam and Eve, our first parents, they were created in the image of God without any taint, without sin. They had that international light, as it were. But after their fall into sin, after uh, Adam and Eve's decision to go against the commandments of our Lord, it's as if their eye became diseased. It's as if that basket was put over the lamp of the image of God. Their hearts, in the language of Romans chapter 1, began to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Rather than having hearts that naturally sought to embrace the truth and law of God, their hearts did the opposite. In verse 29, we read that Jesus referred to this generation as an evil generation. And then in verse 34, as Jesus is speaking about uh, the health of, of, of the eye, he says, 
towards the end of that verse that when the eye is bad, your body is full of darkness. Now that word for evil in verse 29, the word for bad in verse 34, is the same word that Luke is employing in the Greek language, which seems to suggest that in verses 29 through 33, or verses 33 through 36, Jesus is thinking about this crowd, this crowd which had rejected him. He's explaining for us why the crowd's rejecting who he is. Because their, their eye is diseased. They have a lamp over the image of God. The image of God is distorted, corrupted, twisted, perverted, as it were. So why do people buy into irrational, illogical arguments against God? Why do people want signs after signs after signs after signs? Because they have diseased eyes. Their hearts. Their hearts are suppressing the truth of God. Earlier this year, I was reading a, a book about the development of, of morality over time in civilizations and, and people groups. And the argument of the author was that the way we, we develop our moral compass or make moral decisions is not in a cool, collective, reasonable way but rather we make these decisions based on our emotions and intuitive responses. For instance, if you are walking down the street and you see on the other side of the street some young punk beating up an elderly person, in that moment, you're not going to sit there and think of a, a sophisticated syllogism or a pro-con sheet for whether that action is moral or immoral. You're going to have an initial intuitive response to that scene. Said that's how we make most of our moral decisions. We have that gut level feeling, that emotive, intuitive response to various things, and then we use our minds, our reason to justify that emotive response. You could think of your mind in this sense as a, a president's press secretary, given the task of trying to give a rationale for some very irrational decisions by the president. Sometimes that's how our minds work. We're just trying to justify our initial emotive intuitive responses. That's why if you sat down with someone and asked them about their morals, and the things that they think are immoral, you'll probably, in not too long of a time, come to an issue where that person will have no rationale. They'll just say, well, I just feel that that's wrong. And they don't really have a reason, and they might think on the spot for a reason. It might not sound, or it might not be a very coherent reason. They think that, or they believe that, because it's their intuitive, emotive response. Well, I think this fits very well with Jesus' conception of the human person, as well as Paul's conception of the human person in Romans chapter 1. We have hearts, as it were, that naturally are inclined to suppress the truth of God in, our, in unrighteousness. And our minds, then, are seeking to come up with arguments and rationale to justify that path. Our minds are like the press secretary trying to, to give uh, reasons, rationale for our truth-suppressing hearts. And this is why you know, when you press into some of the argumentation of, of people who defy God, atheists, agnostics, it may seem illogical and Irrational because their reason is merely doing the bidding of their hearts, which are naturally inclined to suppress God's 
truth. Therefore, in our apologetics, we need to help people see that their minds and arguments are really just a cart that's drawn behind the horse of these hearts, of our hearts, all our hearts, these suppressing hearts. And therefore, what needs to be changed is, up, is the heart. People don't, at the end of the day, need better logic, better arguments, or more and more signs. Jesus is saying that we need a change of heart. We need a change of heart. And he says this very thing in verse 35. He says, therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. He's essentially saying, be careful that your eyes are not diseased. Make sure that they're healthy. How the world do we do that? How do we make sure that our eyes are healthy? How do we make sure that our hearts are healthy? And the answer to that question is found in the sign of Jonah. We remember early in our services we confessed the benefits, the significance of the resurrection of Christ, the sign of Jonah. We read that the resurrection of Christ means that we are justified. We can be assured that our sins really are forgiven, and that we stand righteous in the sight of God. The resurrection of Christ is what ensures that these hearts of ours will be changed from the inside out. Changed from suppressing the truth to embracing the truth. The resurrection of Christ guarantees that bodily resurrection on the last day. The way we come into contact with these great benefits that Christ has achieved in his resurrection is through the Holy Spirit working through the word of Christ. That message of Christ, which is, continues to be proclaimed through his written word in moments like this, and as you read your Bibles on your own. So, beloved in the Lord, let's be careful. Let's be careful that we respond like the Nineveh. We respond like the king of the south, and not like this cloud here in our passage. Let us pray.